the, uh, the story is told of a little old lady who was nearly blind, and uh, she had three loving sons. Each one wanted to prove which one loved her the most. So son number one uh, bought her a ten-room mansion, thinking this would surely be the best that anyone could offer. Son number two brought her a beautiful Mercedes with a chauffeur, thinking this would surely win her approval and uh, the best gift of all. Son number three wanted to outdo his brothers and because of his mom's blindness decided the best gift would be a trained parrot who had been taught only Bible memory verses. The training period for this unusual parrot had taken 12 years. You could ask the, the parrot to quote any verse and without hesitation he could repeat the verse and, and, and uh, without making a mistake. Now the son thought there could be no greater gift for a blind mother than that of companionship. It was a very practical gift and also very expensive as you can imagine. So after some time had passed, uh, the mother went to the first son and said, you know, son, the house is way too big for me. She said, it's really too big. I can live in one room. It's, it's much too large for me to clean and care for. And even with help, you know what, I really don't see a need for such a house, but thank you anyway. She went to the second one and said, you know, the son said, the car's beautiful and everything you could ever want in the car, but, you know, I don't drive anymore and I don't like the idea of someone driving me around as a chauffeur. So if you wouldn't mind, thank you very much, but you can return the car. Finally, she went to the son number three, and she said, Son, I just want you to know how thoughtful and practical your gift was out of all three gifts. She said, You know, that little chicken was the most delicious I've tasted in years. Now, the last time we were together, I mentioned that there are many instances in life where we are oblivious to the obvious. And that was certainly true of this elderly woman in the story. Now, some of you may think but, or say, but Chuck, uh, didn't her blindness impair her judgment? And the answer would be absolutely. Her blindness did impair her judgment. And wouldn't it be unfair to be judgmental or critical of her in her particular state? And I'd say, sure, I think that would probably be a little harsh. And the reason it was funny is because you could see how that in, in, impaired judgment can affect her behavior. But what if I told you that she was blind because she deliberately had done something to cause the blindness in her own life? That it was her deliberate act that led to the blindness, that led to her impaired judgment, that led to her foolish actions, would that not be a different situation? See, and the reason that I say that, and, the, and you're probably wondering where I'm going with it, is because the last time we were together, we saw that God declares all mankind guilty before God. That in Romans chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 1, starting with verse 18. We're going to see, as God wants us to understand, that we are all guilty before God, and we are responsible for that guilt. We have chosen... In a, in a way, to cause our own spiritual blindness. And, and in doing so, we have gone about with an impaired judgment and have done things that are wrong before God. We are responsible for the end result of our actions. It's really hard in our culture to grasp that, and I'll tell you why. Because we live in a culture that, for example, when a person makes a choice... As a, as a, maybe for instance, and, and any, many of us are familiar with this, but when a person makes a choice of, say, getting drunk, they choose to get drunk, they then get in their car, and they drive somewhere, and in the process, they hit, maim, injure, or kill someone else, 
as they drive down the road. We no longer hold that person responsible because their judgment was impaired because they were drunk. When in reality, they chose to do what they did that then impaired their judgment that led to their behavior that caused the consequences of their actions. But we don't want to assume responsibility or accountability anymore, so we try to find some way to let that person off the hook. Why? Because we're just afraid that someday when we make the same decision, we want to make sure there's someone there to bail us out also. God doesn't buy into any of that. He doesn't say, if you choose to do that, and then I can figure, and we can all figure out some way, reason why we did it, well, therefore, I won't hold you accountable or responsible anymore. God sees right through that. And he holds us accountable for the choices and the decisions that we made. We can't use that argument before God. We try, but it doesn't work. And so in Romans chapter 1, what God's trying to do is to help us to understand from his point of view how he sees us. And that's really important because he's the one in authority, and ultimately he's the one that calls the shots. I need to know how he sees me so I can respond appropriately and accordingly to what he says I need to do. And in Romans 1, in verse 18, we start with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, speaking of us, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their, foolish, in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures, etc. The theme, if you'll recall, of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. But in order to understand this, Paul begins with the unrighteousness of man. In order to understand the holiness and righteousness of God, we have to understand the unrighteousness of man before God. In Romans 1.16, which is the theme of this particular passage, it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, that he died for our sins on the cross in our place. It, for, and it says, Because it's the power of God of, uh, unto salvation for everyone who believes that. That's the theme of this message. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But we need to recognize and understand what it means to be saved or what it means to be delivered. In this culture, they understood, the Romans understood, particularly when there were 60 million slaves in this culture, they understood what it meant to be delivered from slavery unto freedom. So when he said that God is going to deliver us, and as I just read earlier in Psalm 32, that we have a deliverer who will take us from slavery and the Bible uses slavery as a euphemism for sin, to take us from sin, the bondage of slavery or sin, and to free us or deliver us, they were listening quite intently. What do I got to do to be saved from this mess that I'm in? And so God wants us to understand what we need to do to be saved from the mess we're in, but before we can ask what we have to do to be saved from the mess we're in, or what, where can we go or where can we turn, we got to realize we're in a mess. So he outlines it very clearly for us that we are in a mess. We need to be delivered quite clearly, we're told in verse 18, from the wrath of God. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Remember, that is those who are against God. And all unrighteousness, those who are living in a way that is wrong before God. There's a way that seems right. We think it's righteous, but it's not. The end is destruction. So when we're doing that, which God says not to do, it's unrighteousness. And God then, therefore, declares us guilty for violating his standard. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who are against God and against everyone who's lived their life in a way that God says is the wrong way to live and declares us guilty. So now we need to be delivered from the wrath or the judgment of God. And that's what he's going to lay out as we go through here. Now the question for you is, is this, why is mankind, and I want to personalize this, and you should also, why am I guilty before God? And if you recall, we went through in in great length, and just as a quick refresher, God gives us three reasons for our condemnation before God. Three reasons God says that every human being is guilty before God. All are guilty, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, which is what sin is. God sets a standard, we don't live up to it, we fall short of it, we're guilty. He says, number one, we're guilty for suppressing God's truth. What God says is truth, the Bible says his word is truth. Jesus reinforced that when he said, Father, thy word is truth, sanctify us or set us apart for your truth. The Bible is the truth of God. The Bible is the Word of God in written form. The very Word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The very Word of God that can deliver us from death unto life because God's plan is laid out for us right here. What God says is you and I are guilty because every one of us have suppressed or turned away from God's truth. God has revealed it to us. We have decided I don't want anything to do with it. And then we begin to justify we don't want anything to do with it. We say things like, you know what? Well, the Bible is written by a bunch of men. The Bible has contradictions in it. The Bible is, you know, some things I can understand, some things I don't understand, some, some things I buy into, some things I don't buy into. So it's kind of like the reason that we rationalize and justify not wanting to believe what God says, that this is the Word of God, is simply because we're guilty before God and we don't want to be confronted with that truth. I don't want to hear what God has to say because I want to keep living my life the way I want to live it. And so as God reveals it, we say those things, and many of us who say those things, and I know even from a point in my past, I said, you know, Bible's full of contradictions, the Bible's just written by men, the Bible, why should I believe the Bible, blah, 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 blah. I used to say those things all the time, and you know what? I never even checked into it. Never read it, never checked into it, never looked upon it, never looked at it, never examined the evidence. I just came to the point of saying, I don't want to believe it because I got a good hunch I know where it's leading. You know what I'm saying? I mean, have you been there before? It's like, you know, you need to believe the Bible. Why? I don't want to believe the Bible. And we rationalize and justify because we want somehow or another to placate our guilt. Because within the heart of every human being, the Bible says in verse 19, that God has made himself evident within us. So I don't want to seek the truth, and I don't want to take that next step because I already know where God's leading me because the conscience that he's given me has already been kind of telling me that what you're doing, Chuck, is wrong before God, even though I never read the Bible or even understood his standards. Something within me was saying, Chuck, what you're doing is wrong. And I'd rationalize it, justify it, and then just kind of suppress the truth. And that's what it means. It means to step on it and to hold it down. Don't allow it to do what God has sent it forth to accomplish which is to penetrate our hearts and to change our our way of thinking and to change our minds and to change our behavior and to change how we think of God. We don't want to know any of that. So we soothe our conscience by rationalizing and justifying the things that we do. 
Now, what God says is we're all guilty because we've all suppressed that truth. We're all guilty because we've ignored God's revelation. As we look in the universe around us, we know that God exists. We can see it. We saw the day and night pours forth speech. Day into day and night into night, God is shouting his creation, hey, there's a creator. I'm, a, I'm here. I exist. I put it all together. You need to seek me out. You need to search me. You need to find me. You need to, to seek my truth. And the Bible says whoever seeks the Lord will not be disappointed. Whoever is looking for him will find him because he's not far from any of us. We see wonderful illustrations of it all through the Bible where man who has turned and run from God as he's turned and walked back toward him, God is already running toward him like the prodigal son in the story of the father, the son who walked away from the father. And then when he came to his senses, he turned and he walked back to his father. But what he saw was his father just wasn't sitting there saying, I'm going to make you come to me. He's running to him. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Active participation on the part of a loving God who sent his son to seek us out and to save us from the guilt and the wrath of God that would come in judgment on every one of our lives. If you take that illustration of the river with a person floating down, put all of mankind in that river. All of mankind's in that river that, that the water is rushing towards the ocean of destruction. Every one of us are in that river getting washed away out into the ocean and forever lost. And every one of us are in that river because we've chosen to go and play in the water. We've chosen to walk away from God and walk down the slope and we've fallen. And we've fallen into the water and we're lost. And as we're floating downstream, we have many options at that point. We can rationalize and justify how we got there, why we got there, how it wasn't our fault, how somebody pushed us, how somebody led us that direction. We can rationalize it in a million ways. But when that hand reaches out and says, grab on, then we have a choice at that point of saying, you know what, I don't want your help, I'll do it on my own. Can you imagine the ignorance of a person who would turn away from a rescuer and say, I don't want your help, I don't like what your hand looks like. Or you got the goofy yellow suit on, you know, or you got the gloves on, or whatever it is, I, you know, you look stupid. I don't, I don't like that plan. I'll just wait. Is there somebody further downstream that got a better answer? I look at that as all of mankind, as God reaching out and saying, here's the hand of deliverance. You got a choice. Take it or leave it. But if you leave it, there's no other hope. Now, can you imagine the person floating downstream and the rescuer says, I'm the last stop before you're destroyed. You think the person who is in genuine need of rescue would say, let me think about it a little longer. But we laugh, but that's what mankind does every day. God penetrates our heart with truth. He reaches out his hand to rescue us. And we say, I'm not interested today. Let me think about it a little longer. Gobble, gobble, blah. I don't know. I think we got a problem. The third thing he said was for perverting God's glory. Rather than worship God, give him his just dues as God, praise him, thank him, uh, honor him as God. Rather than do that, the Bible says that man, even though man knew God in verse 21, they didn't honor him as God. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. Even though Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, they turned their back in rebellion and walked from him. Even though they knew him intimately, they didn't honor him as God. They weren't submissive to his word. They didn't listen and obey his commandments. They decided to each go his own way, and that's what they did. And the Bible says because of that, they became futile in their speculations, and foolish hearts were darkened, and mankind from that day forward is just as foolish in their speculations, and our hearts have become darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, 
and, and, the, and the result of it is they exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four, four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And what God is saying is, can you imagine how far man has fallen? That man knew God, knew the story of creation, knew how everything came into being, and we still struggle with that. How did all this come here? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the deep, and then God said, let there be light, and there is light. And we still, to this day, professing to be wise, we've become foolish, trying to figure out how everything came into being. The question I ask, and I'll ask you, is this, you know, we try to date everything, age everything, how old is the earth, all these arguments that we have. My question for you is this, if you had been placed on the earth after the day that God has created the universe, and you were placed there, and you looked around, my question to you is this, how old would everything have been? Pretty old. See, that's good. You've learned something over the years of experience. It would seem pretty old. But we knew that it was just created because we know from the Word of God it was created in a day that particular part of creation was created. But if you look at it, you said, oh, how old was man when he was created? How old were the trees when they were created? How old was the universe when they were created? You don't think God could create something with a semblance of age? Professing to be wise, we've become stupid. Because we've turned our back and suppressed the very word of God that clearly demonstrates who he is. We've perverted God's glory. Rather than God being the central part of the universe and all of us as his creation to worship him and to praise him and to honor him and to give him thanks and praise for who he is, what we've done is we said, we don't like you as God. We'll make our own gods. And we'll carve them out of trees and we'll make them out of rocks and we'll make them out of our businesses and we'll make them out of the hand, you know, our own hands. Can you imagine how far man has fallen when we have known God and we've turned from him and we create our own gods when we know we've been created? Isaiah, sometime when you get a chance, read Isaiah where it talks just about the, the, uh, the foolishness of perverting God's glory. Isaiah 44, read it on your own. We became futile, worthless, purposeless, without form. Keep that in mind because it's important as we examine verses 24 through 32. That which is without form or purpose or that which violates the very plan of God. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Morally senseless, the word foolish means. It's a fool who says in his heart there's no God. And God is right because it's a foolish person that says there's no God. And when we say there's no God, we just confirm what God says, that we're fools. I love the story I've heard of a, of a woman who was a teacher. And she was uh, obviously liberal, and she had liberal tendencies as she explained to her class of small children. She was an atheist. And she said to her class, how many children here are an atheist just like me? And all these little kids started raising their hands, and they didn't even know what it meant to be an atheist. They didn't know what atheism was, and they'd all raise their hands. Oh, I'm an atheist. Except for one little girl in the back of the room. Her name is Lucy. And she just sat there, and she smiled. And the teacher got upset about it and said, Lucy, you didn't raise your hands. Aren't you an atheist like all of us? And she said, no. I said, what do you mean, no? What are you? She says, I'm a Christian. She's there. You're a Christian? She says, yeah. My mom's a Christian, my dad's a Christian, and I'm a Christian. And the teacher looked at her and said, are you going to tell, what if your mom was a moron and your dad was a moron? What would you be then? She smiled and looked at her and said, then I'd be an atheist. <laughs> Is that great? 
Now, of course, there's only one way to become a Christian. That's to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And just because our mom's a Christian or dad's a Christian doesn't mean we'd be a Christian. But I think the point is well taken. Foolish hearts were darkened. See, when truth is rejected, turn with me to John chapter 3, a great illustration of this. When truth is rejected or suppressed or ignored, the ability to recognize and receive the truth is impaired. When God's truth is suppressed, when it's rejected, or when it's ignored, or when it's exchanged for our own gods and our own creation, then God's truth, as it's revealed, is harder to accept. In John chapter 3, the story prior to the verses I'm going to go to, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and he said, Teacher, what do I got to do to get into heaven? It's a great passage of, of God revealing a very simple way of salvation, the only way to be right with God. He said, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus said, I don't get it. I don't understand. What does it mean to be born again? I can't be born. I'm an old man. I can't crawl back in my mother's womb. I can't start all over. I can't do anything. He says, no, no, no. Being born again means the Spirit of God comes into a person's life and takes that dead person that's dead spiritually and gives him life. Titus chapter 3, read verses 3 through 5. The regeneration, the washing of the work of God through the Holy Spirit in a person's life who acknowledges their sin, accepts Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. The Bible says at that moment we're born again unto God, that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us spiritual life. He goes on and he says this, in verse 14, or 13, look, he says, no one has ascended into heaven. He's saying that no one's gone into heaven and come back to tell us how to get there, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Can you imagine? Jesus was saying, and he said later in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way. Philip said, how do we get to the Father who's in heaven? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through me. It's not what we know. In any area of life, is it? It's usually who we know. And the same is true here. If you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you know him as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible says it's through him that we can get into heaven to the very presence of God. Who knows better than he who has been there to come down to earth and say, I know how to get you there, follow me. That's the point he was making. No one's been to heaven, but even the Son of Man who has been there and has come from heaven, God sent his only begotten Son. He came from the throne room of heaven, came to this earth and says, now I will tell you how to get there, you follow me. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We talked about that in the first week. We talked about how if you look upon the serpent in the wilderness who had been bitten by a snake bite, if they would just look at that serpent and believe they would be healed, God says if you would look upon Jesus Christ on the cross and believe that he died for your sins and believe that you too shall be healed, that whoever believes may in him, speaking of Jesus, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge it or to condemn it, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. People say, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you the question, if you happen to be there, how many, have you ever really checked into the facts? Have you ever really looked into the evidence? You don't want to believe in Jesus. That's fine. But at least do it on an informed basis. Can you really in your heart tell me that Jesus Christ isn't different from anybody else that ever walked the face of the earth? He never had a kingdom. He wasn't a world leader. He wasn't a general or a dictator or a military leader. 
People call him great. In all religions, they recognize how great he is. They just differ as to why he's great. He rose from the dead that's documented. 500 people evidenced it. And for the last 25, or you know, for the last 2,000 years, almost, we have celebrated that resurrection. No one has ever been able to deny it or disprove it. Those who followed him but ran away from him when he was arrested, all but one of them, as they followed him, went to their death because of him, when they said, deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and they said, I can't. If you don't deny it, we'll kill you. Then kill us, because absent from the body, we'll be present with our Lord. Can you imagine who would die for such a lie? If Jesus was lying to them and it wasn't true, they would have walked away from him and never came back. But they saw him. He was resurrected. He walked with them for 40 days on the earth and their lives were changed and transformed. And then the Apostle Paul was Saul, who saw him on the road to Damascus was knocked off of his ass and onto his. And he was never the same. He was never the same after that. He had seen Jesus. And he was never the same. That's why he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he died for my sins, because it's a power of God. Everywhere I go and I tell people that and they believe in Jesus, their lives are changed. They're never the same. I can't help but be excited about it. It's God's plan. It's His power to save people from the destruction in which they're about to, take, to enter into. They're dead in their sins. The world's been judged already. It's condemned. They're washed down that, that, that wash and, and He reaches out and He grabs them. Jesus Christ is alive. And He's coming again one day to judge all humanity. And he will judge us based on not only how we lived our lives, but more importantly, whether we believed in him and trusted him for the forgiveness of our sins. Those who believe in him should not perish. But those who won't believe in him are dead already. And they're just waiting for the final sentence of an eternity away from God. You see, he understood. And this is the judgment. And here's why we're all guilty. That the light has come into the world. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Says the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. And do you know why? Because their 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 deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. You try talking that fast sometimes. <laughs> Get all excited and start rambling. It's like, but their deeds were evil. Do you understand that? We're all guilty. And now he's going to demonstrate to us. As we look at this, the digression or the devolution of man, the continuing fall of man and how bad it has become, and it's nothing more than just further evidence that we're all guilty before God. The results of God's condemnation are found clearly back in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 24 through 32. Therefore, because man has suppressed the truth, because man has ignored God's revelation, because man has perverted God's glory, Therefore, because of that, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and their, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. You see that? There's a connection there. Look at the results of that condemnation. God gave us over. Therefore, because you suppress my truth, you've ignored my revelation, my glory, you've decided that you want to be God instead of me being God, therefore God gave us over. It's a logical sequence. We're under the wrath of God because in spite of God's truth, in spite of the conscience that he's given us to know the difference between right or wrong, in spite of the evidence of his creation, in spite of who he is, we have chosen to turn in rebellion and walk away from him. 
It is not a mistake. We as individuals, including myself and you also, we have chosen to rebel against God. It is not a mistake. It is a choice. It is a choice that each individual has made in his heart when even though God reveals himself to us as individuals, we have chosen to ignore the revelation, to suppress the truth, and to turn and walk away from God, saying in essence, God, I don't want to do it your way. I'll do it my way. We're floating down the stream towards destruction, and we look at our rescuer and say, I don't believe that that's the only plan to get out of the mess that I'm in. No, thank you. See you later. I'll do it my way. Now, there are even those who are in the midst of the mess thinking they're having a good time. Wow, this is fun. Woo-hoo! Can you imagine? Floating down the middle of the, this river of mess toward destruction because we, they can't see the end. And let's just assume to make the illustration even more fun, there's a waterfall at the end that's about 800 feet deep. You know, and they're just floating down going, this is fun. And God's going, you don't see what I see. And that waterfall, that fall, is a good picture of hell. You don't see the end where this is all going, and I'm trying to reveal it to you. But if you keep going the way you're going, and you keep ignoring me as the rescuer, and you go off that waterfall, there's no hope for you. And you will suffer for all of eternity because you have rejected my provision for you. Oh, you see, it's a, really, it's a matter of rebellion. Several years ago, Linda and I were in Switzerland, and we saw the Swiss Border uh, Patrol training their dogs. And these Swiss border dogs are a fascinating breed. Most of them are, are German shepherds, but they train these dogs to be very, very mean and to be very cruel and to be very harsh. It's kind of like canine patrol. If you've ever seen you know, something on TV where a canine dog jumps out of the car, what's really fascinating thing is that basically what's this is God is saying this. God actively participates in mankind's fall by letting go of the leash. Picture yourself as the dog in rebellion against his master who wants to go his own direction, is pulling and tugging at the leash, wants to do what he wants to do, ignoring that the master's in control. And what God says eventually, he says, you know what, I'm just letting go of the leash. I've held on and restrained long enough, but you want to go the direction that you want to go. And you know what, and you don't want to accuse God of you know, making me do something I don't want to do. How many people say, I don't know, you know, well, God makes me do this, makes me do that. You know, God says, hey, you know what, I'm not going to make you do anything. If you don't want to submit to me as your master and you want to just be bent on destroying yourself, I'll just let go of your leash. God has let go of the leash of humanity, and this is the result of it. God gave them up. God gave us up. He gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity. One of the evidences or signs in our culture that God has given us up is that of what we would call in the Bible fornication. Fornication, according to the Bible, the Bible says that the marriage bed should be undefiled, that it should be pure according to God, that within marriage sex is a gift from God, and that any sexual activity outside of marriage, the Bible says the marriage bed is to be undefiled, Hebrews 13, 4, but the fornicator and the adulterer shall be judged. Now what's really fascinating is we live in a culture that's bought into this line, let me just explain it to you, and that is this. Boy, you know what, there's something, adultery, boy, you know, I just don't have any compassion for somebody who commit adultery. But in the meantime, these are people guilty of having sexual relationships outside of marriage. They're having sex with whoever they want to have sex with, whenever they say that they love each other, they say they're committed to each other, blah, 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 but they're having sex outside of marriage. And I say, now, if I got married, then I would stop having sex with anybody other than my spouse, I would be faithful. 
And then something comes up and situations happen and all of a sudden one thing leads to another and they become guilty of adultery. But you know what? It's the same root problem as was existing at the same time before when they were having sex outside of marriage. They were still guilty before God. It's just now a different expression of that guilt. But we live in a culture today that says, you know what? Hey, uh, you know, as long as it's safe sex, as long as you love each other, as long as you're going to be committed to each other, and after all, we are going to get engaged and we are going to get married, and all this nonsense, the Bible calls it sin. He calls it immorality, that which is unpure. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, and their bodies might be dishonored among them. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, God's answer to this problem of sexual immorality is marriage. He says, therefore, because of this great immorality that was taking place then in the city of Corinth, as an example, they had a temple of, of a thousand prostitutes, and they even included it in their religious acts. And men would go up to the top of the hill, and we were there when we visited Corinth, and they showed the place of the temple prostitutes. There were a thousand women who would prostitute themselves, and men, as a part of their worship to the God they created in their own minds and with their own hands, said, part of this is that we will go up to these prostitutes, and we'll have sex with them. And we will worship God that way. Can you imagine how depraved that mind is and how foolish we are darkened in our understandings that we would even come up with a program like that? But we've been doing it since Adam and Eve fell. God's answer to fornication or immorality is sex is a gift to be enjoyed within heterosexual marriage. His answer is in 1 Corinthians, let each man one and each woman one, have her own husband, own wife, and within that relationship, God blesses sexual activity. Period. Jesus in Matthew 19 said the same thing. In the beginning, have you forgotten already? In the beginning, God made them male and made them female. And it was for this cause, speaking of marriage, that a man would leave his father and mother and would cleave to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. Have we forgotten God's plan? Absolutely we have. The plan of God is a father, a mother, a male, a female, one. Bigamy's out, polygamy's out, multiple partners are out. Any other way we want to try to define it is out. A male, a female, a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, and then children as a result of that relationship. Heterosexual. We look at the word of God, but you know what? Sex is to be enjoyed within the sanctity of heterosexual marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. But man suppressed that truth. And in rebellion turns from God's plan. Today we see the frequency of it. We see the frequency of sex outside of marriage. We see people who live together and have sex together. We see people who have multiple sexual partners. We see people who swap husbands and wives and wife swapping and, and spouse swapping. We see group sex. We see pornography. All of it demonstrating what God says. That we are guilty before God. That we're down in the muck and the mire and we're getting swept out to our destruction. And it's evidence of the fact that God just stepped aside and said, go ahead and destroy yourselves. Is that the direction you want to go? I'll stand back and I won't stop you. If you don't think sexual activity outside of marriage is a problem in our culture, I was reading the other day about this thing that's going on in Irvine, this company called Biofem. Some of you may have read it. One of the partners supposedly was accused of hiring somebody to kill his partner for whatever reason. Ended up he killed himself because now he was going to be indicted as possibly implicated in that. But the thing that fascinates me through all that is this. The, the, the company had designed a product, a suppository, 
that women could take when they have sexual relationships with those other than their spouse, and they could take this product to protect them from sexually transmitted diseases. And if you don't think that activity is prevalent in our culture, understand that they had projected within the first five years after FDA approval that it would be a $400 million a year product. Think about it just in practical standpoint. $400 million a year in a product that would protect women who are having sex outside of marriage from con contracting con any kind of sexual disease. God says we're guilty. And I say the evidence indicates it. All you got to do is turn on the television set. And what do we see now? We see sex outside of marriage is not only encouraged, but it's expected. We see casual shows like Friends where they just have sex with each other. And it's promoted. 20 years ago, we would have stood for it. Today, it's expected. Our kids grow up and they look at it and say, hey, you know what? All you got to do is have some kind of fond link link for somebody and let's jump in the rack. God says, you know what? And it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you emotionally. It'll destroy you physically. Sexually transmitted diseases are rampant in our culture. It'll destroy you spiritually. It'll destroy you mentally. I deal with people all the time. You know what some of the biggest baggage that they have going into a new marriage is the mental and emotional distress of having previous sexual partners. And they can't enjoy each other or the joy of discovery within marriage because it's all been distorted by all the activity that's taken place before that. And then people are made fun of. Oh, you're a virgin. Oh, you're still a virgin. A.C. Green, L.A. Lakers, 38-year-old virgin. Ha, ha, ha. Praise God that people are standing out in our culture that will make that statement despite the ridicule of a culture that is hell-bent on self-destruction. And it's not prudish. People say, well, you know, that's so prudish, you don't understand. No, you don't understand a holy and righteous God. You don't understand sin. You don't understand judgment. You don't understand the consequences of it. You don't understand because you've never spent time with a person whose life is destroyed because they were used by someone who said, I love you. Then they got that person pregnant, and then they said, what's your name again? And you deal with it. I'm out of here. You deal with that. You talk to people whose lives are screwed up by the encouraged activity of just, hey, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, and if you're going to do it, just do it safely. There is no safe way to sin. You can't put a condom over your soul or over your emotions or over your mentalities. You can't protect yourself from the judgment of God despite the stupid nonsense. Those who profess to be wise became fools in the sight of God. Well-meaning, well-educated, highly educated people like Donna Shalala and people like that in the current administration who would go into high schools or into junior high schools and teach people at that age anything other than abstinence is just wrong before God and it's morally deplorable and they will be judged accordingly. Just wrong. The second thing is he abandoned us to sexual perversion. Sexual perversion, look at verse 26 and 27. It says, and in the same way also, notice that, for this reason, God gave them over. There's our outline, a short outline. God gave them over to immorality, sexual immorality. Second thing is God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. 
sexual perversions. Contrary to those who attempt to convince us that homosexuality is a result of an enlightened mind, an open mind, somehow we're evolving into this thing where we can all be open and free and support whatever we all decide to do. And it should be accepted. It should be encouraged. We need to have a, a homosexual character on every TV show that's out anymore because, after all, isn't that the balance of our culture? Isn't that how we should you know, promote that kind of activity? And literally, the, the Bible says it is unnatural. Literally, it is against nature. Remember what I said? It is against the original plan of God. Those who practice such things go against the plan or purpose of God's design. It is literally against the, the design and plan of God. And it's further evidence of, of the result of God's abandonment. It's a result of a darkened mind, it's ignorant of God, and it's a result of our rebellion against God. Don't ever buy into the lie that somehow you need to be more open-minded. Where God is very clear, we must also be clear. Because it is destroying the lives of those who are being told it's okay to do what they're doing, even though the conscience of God that was put in them realizes that what they were doing is wrong, but we need to have enough people around us who will tell us what we're doing is okay so we feel better about ourselves. Misery loves company. There are those who participate in such things whose lives are destroyed, but they want to make sure if we get enough people doing it, maybe somehow it will elevate me out of the misery that I'm in. It doesn't happen that way. Who would have ever thought that the day would come when as a society in the United States we would actually be voting on how to define a marriage? Who would have thought 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that there would be a proposition on the ballot as how to define marriage? If marriage is no longer defined according to God's plan, one woman, one man, one husband, one wife, if that is not going to be the law of our land, then all hell is going to break loose. Because where will it stop? One man, one woman, one man, one man, one woman, one woman, two men, two women, three women, three men. Where does it stop? And who's next? As we continue to plunge and fall into the perversion that we've fallen, in, fallen into. Why is that acceptable? And it just reminds me of our moral responsibility to get out and vote. To vote yes on Proposition 22 to vote in general for the leadership of our nation who will either lead us toward God or take us farther down into the pit of destruction that we're falling into as a society. The problem is that God's people are the ones who are too quiet. What do you expect the rest of the world to do? Everybody's in this cesspool and they're all floating down together and they're all trying to find some activity to keep them busy while they're floating away. It's only those who have reached out for the hand of the deliverer who stands up on the shore that sees the end result that's in a position to warn them where they're going. But we sit back going, oh, who should we judge? I see older people, moral people, who have been led to believe that, you know what, well, if that's what the kids are doing now, they, what, what's wrong with you? What did you lose your mind? What day was that? I'm going back and help you find it. Where were you last when you had your senses? You know, think about it. You know, what are we doing? Where's God's people who are standing up and been delivered from that, who stand there and see where they're heading? Where, what, I mean, do we love people enough to warn them where they're going? Oh, I don't want them to think that I'm weird. You're standing up here dry and saved and delivered. They're in the muck and the mire and they're looking up going, you know what, wonder how they got up there. 
I think I'll ask them. And I think we should share it with them. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. It's what delivered me from there to here. It's the power of God unto salvation. And the only thing people need to do is what? Believe what God says. We live in a culture that's just absolutely, it's amazing how far we have fallen. The natural youth, the plan of God that's shapeless, it's without, it's without form, it's void. It's void of what God says a relationship is all about. It's void of what God's plan was for marriage. We need to recognize and understand that. The Bible teaches that sexual perversion, in this case homosexuality, is one of many sins for which the law was given to show people that were guilty. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. If one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for the murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, sexually immoral people, for sodomites, speaking of homosexuality, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law of God was given so that man would see what, in relationship to God's standards, we're all guilty. And now understand something. The sin of homosexuality is no worse than the sin of adultery, is no worse than the sin of having sex outside of marriage, is no worse than the sin of lying, is no worse than the sin of stealing, is no worse than the sin of coveting your neighbor's goods or your neighbor's wife, is no worse than any other sin because to a holy and righteous God, sin is sin, and all we got to do is be guilty of one thing, and we violated all of the law. And the problem that we have in our culture is that there are those who come out and say, but you're a homophobe. No, I'm a sinophobe. (laughs) Let's just tell it the way it is. I'm afraid of the consequences of sin because I know a righteous and holy God cannot turn his back on sin and he will judge us. And you are no worse for being a homosexual than somebody is for being, quote, a heterosexual having sex outside of marriage. And we need to teach the truth, the whole truth of the Word of God, the sound doctrine of the Word of God. Because when we start to do that, then maybe our culture will listen. We're not just picking on homosexuals. We're picking on sinners, of which we too are foremost. And we too are guilty before God. But the difference between us and them is we found deliverance from our guilt and they are still guilty before God. That's the only difference. We need to recognize and understand that. We live in a world that's just fallen. And it's fallen faster and faster, and it's evident throughout our culture. It's evident by the fact that we're voting to define marriage. How far and how fast have we fallen? We need to step up, and we need to be heard, because God's word is truth, and God's word frees people, delivers people from their sin. Now, I read a great article just about perverted social engineers don the cloak of religion. If you get a chance, look this thing up. Uh, Laura Schlesinger wrote it on S- Sunday, February 13th, uh, 2000, in the Orange County Register. It was finally in the accent session, section, but here's the gist of it. There are those who are promoting a sexual agenda in our culture. They're trying to promote it. Educational guidelines call for children ages 5 to 8. This is SECUS, a group that Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. SECUS, educational guidelines call for children ages 5 to 8 to be taught about masturbation. Children ages 9 to 12 to be taught different ways to share sexual pleasures with each other. Children ages 12 to 15 to be shown where to buy contraceptives. Children 16 to 18 to be instructed in the use of erotic photos, movies, or literature to enhance their sexual fantasies. She goes on to say this. Why would the leading advocates for increasingly graphic sexual education instruction to all ages invoke God in their manifesto? Listen carefully. 
because religion is the last bastion of morality in this humanistic society. See, the movement is trying to get the church to buy into the lie. That somehow or another, but God didn't really say just one man and one woman. God didn't really say just a husband and a wife, faithful to each other, till death do them part? Now, you don't really think that God really is that narrow in how he would do things? God really didn't say that sex outside of marriage is wrong, did he? After all, God created you with those desires. After all, he wants you to enjoy the fullness of your body and your creation. After all, God didn't really say that sex, you know, that homosexuality is wrong. Certainly God didn't say that. And so if we can infiltrate and, and pervert the word of God and the truth of the word of God then there's, there's no more morality left. There's no more standard left. There's no more anchor to hold on to. There's no more place to turn for truth. Because now, it's even like this headline that I saw, just Methodists drop gay wedding charges. 68 Methodist ministers who blessed lesbian marriages won't be tried for their stand against the ban. It's too divisive. It's too disruptive in our church. Therefore, we'll just look the other way. And I'm just not picking on the Methodists because, you know what, it's creeping into every denomination, into every religion. And if the federal government has its way and there's not a change in the leadership in our country, it'll be a mandate that'll come in the very Bible-teaching churches. There will be a day that comes if we don't step up now where I would stand and preach a message like this and I'll be thrown in prison if I'm not killed first. See, God's truth is God's truth and it hasn't changed. His word is eternal. And we need to recognize and understand something. God loves people. And he sees the waterfall at the end of this trip that we're all on. And he wants to rescue us from it. He has turned us over to sexual immorality, to sexual perversion, and just to an all-around depraved lifestyle. And just as God, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, guess what? God gave them over. There it is again. To what? To a depraved mind to do those things which aren't proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, they're without understanding, they're untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And there's a commentary of our culture. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. I am amazed when I hear people in our culture say, what is going on in our country when a six-year-old kid would go home and get a gun and go back and shoot a six-year-old classmate? What is wrong in our country when these are the kind of things that happen? What's wrong in our state of California when there were 23,000 incidents of drug and alcohol offense in the school districts last year? Or 19,000 cases of battery? Or 2,000 assaults with a deadly weapon? Or 1,090 sex offenses? Or 7,500 weapons possessions? Or 24,000 property crimes? All adding up to $25 million in loss to crime. What's wrong in the state of California is the same thing that's wrong in our nation. Where have we gone wrong as individuals, first of all, and collectively as a nation? We have suppressed God's truth. We've ignored his revelation. We've perverted his glory. We're indeed all guilty before God. We've turned away from him and we've gone about our own way in rebellion against God. And then we all sit around and wonder, why is all this happening? It's happening because we don't even allow our kids to believe in God. We don't teach them about God. We teach them about evolution and other nonsense as if it's truth and it's nothing but a bunch of nonsensical theories. We teach them that human beings have no value, that life isn't important anymore. In fact, I'm going to close on this. 
there was a minister, Joe Wright, was asked to open the new session of Kansas, of the Kansas Senate. Everyone's expecting the typical thing that most ministers dish out. But here's what he said. Heavenly Father, we've come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium. We have reversed our values. We confess that to you. We have acknowledged or ridiculed the absolute truth of your word, and we call it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods. We call it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor. We call it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness. We call it welfare. We have killed our unborn and call it choice. We have shot abortionists and call it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and we call it building self-esteem. We have abused power. We call it politics. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions. We call it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. We have gone astray. But that's no surprise to God because God said each of us have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The picture that God paints is not a pretty picture. But thanks be to God that that's not the end of the story in his word. The question for us is this. Where do we go from here? We turn back to God. We turn back to God. And we acknowledge our sin before God. We confess our sin. And we're grateful that he's faithful and just to forgive us. We turn back to him and we become the people of God. The reason that we were created in the first place. To make him central in our, in our life. To make him the great, the, the great uh, object of our love. To love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To stop loving ourselves and putting ourselves first. To stop putting our desires and our pleasures before the, 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 uh, the expressed word of God. To put him first in our life. To turn to him. To reach out to the hand who wants to rescue us. And to hold out to him and say, God forgive me for I am a sinner. And I believe what you say, I'm on, my ro on the road to destruction. I'm about to go over the waterfall. And I just praise you and thank you that you've reached out in your son. And that he's died for me in my place on the cross. And I don't understand it fully. But I need help and I know that. And I'm going to reach out and grab that hand for deliverance. And I'm going to praise you because of Jesus Christ. Because my sins are covered by his blood. And I'm going to believe in him because I recognize who he is. I understand that he came to this earth. That he lived a perfect life. That he went to the cross on my behalf. That he died on the cross. And I understand because the history and the evidence is overwhelming. That three days later he rose again. He is God in human flesh. And he is the only way back to heaven. He is our only. He's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the Bible says you better reach out and grab onto your deliverer. Because if you choose not to, that you are judged already. And it's just a matter of time before you are finally separated from God and the opportunity that he's given you for deliverance for all of eternity. There will never be a day where any human being stands before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ and say, God, you didn't love me enough to get my attention. And he'll just go, you know what? Hey, you perverted my glory. You rejected my, my creation. You've suppressed the truth that I delivered to you. You sat in churches where the Bible was teaching. You went to Bible studies. You saw lives that were changed by people who trusted in Jesus Christ. The evidence was overwhelming. But in your heart, you choose to rebel against me. So there is no excuse before God. None at all. So if you're here today and you're not sure if you're going over the waterfall, but you don't know where you're going, I guarantee if you don't know where you're going, you're going over the waterfall. 
And you better reach out to the rescuer. And you better hang on to Jesus Christ for all of your life. Not only this one, but into eternity. And then praise him and thank him. And we as believers, we need to stop suppressing the truth of God's word in our life. And we need to be a light that stands up above the, the, the destruction of humanity. And when people see us, we better not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the only plan of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the truth. We thank you for the relevance of it. Obviously, it's the word, your word is eternal. And what a, there's no greater commentary of what we're going through as a nation. God, help us to be people who first and foremost have an understanding of your great love for us. And even when we're sinners, you sent Christ to die. Father, I just thank you personally that you came into my life, that I believed in Jesus Christ 22 years ago. And I can remember the day that I met him probably just as vividly as, as Saul of Tarsus remembered the day that Jesus came into his life on the road to Damascus. My life has never been the same. And God, I just praise you and I thank you for that. I thank you for the clarity that we have in your word, that we're not darkened our foolish understandings and our hearts are darkened as those in the world who have turned from you in rebellion, that your word is truth and it's a light to all. Just thank you for Jesus Christ, who when, even when I was in re rebellion against him, you sent Jesus to die for me, to love me, and to demonstrate it by his death on the cross. I just thank you that I came to that understanding personally and invited Christ to come into my life and to do with it as he would wish. That as the Apostle Paul, we've become bondservants as slaves to Jesus, willingly, because of the death that he shed, his blood on the cross for us. God, I just pray for those who may not know you today that they'll come to a certain sense of understanding and they'll reach out to the hand of the deliverer. And that they'll stop rebelling against you and your word and stop suppressing your truth but allow you to work in their life. God, we just thank you. If any man's in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. God, I just pray as individuals in our society that we will collectively stand up for that which is right according to your standards. Not our own opinions, not our personal preferences, but on what you clearly dictate as truth in your word that we can see you're a God who loves us and wants what's best for us. You're not trying to keep us from having fun or experiencing things that somehow or another we think you're holding us back from, but you're protecting us from the consequences and the judgment of sin. And we just praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.